I would like to now call on Flor Wurtus, who is a senior research fellow in the Africa Regional Office and the co-editor of the 2017-2018 Annual Trends and Outlook Report. She's going to give us an overview of the report. Fleur. Good afternoon, everybody. So I was one of the editors uh, of the report together with uh, Alamayo Seum. And we uh, solicited about 15 chapters, I think, from, from various uh, experts on the topic. And I'll just be presenting some, some highlights of the, of the findings of the report. Um, I haven't done much research myself on social protection, but I did through actually reading the chapters and uh, uh, writing the introduction and the conclusion get a, get a good sense of, of what's actually going on uh, on the ground in, uh, in Africa. So a bit of a more of a motivation. I think Usman already started to talk about it, but um, one of the reasons why uh, we started, uh, we chose social protection as the topic uh, for this ATOR was actually that uh, while the emphasis in Africa uh, remains on agriculture-led growth uh, as the engine really for poverty reduction, uh, it's also become clear that even if, the, if growth is in inclusive, it may still not be enough to lift everyone out of poverty. So, and, and, and I think in addition to that, because uh, most Africans still make their living from the land, they are particularly vulnerable to weather-related shocks and natural disasters. And so there's quite a few households for whom food insecurity is almost a daily reality. And so to actually then take part in and benefit from the growth process and from the growth that is going on in Africa, uh, there is a need for households <coughs> to have some level of basic um, capital and security. Okay, and so uh, this is where social protection programs can actually play an important role. So these are often uh, public or private initiatives that help the poor and protect the vulnerable against livelihood risks. And they can actually be effectively used to assist those trapped or at the risk of being trapped in chronic poverty. Yet if you look at the, um, the figure I'm gonna present, you can see that the coverage of social protection is extremely low in African countries. So what you see here is that over 80% of households in Sub-Saharan Africa had received no transfer. I think this is maybe a couple of years back, this data from the Aspire database from the World Bank, which has also got all kinds of interesting stuff on, uh, on social protection um, um, figures. And so you can see that, I mean, there's a large number of households that have remained uncovered, especially in comparison to other uh, regions. Okay, and so then to get into a little bit more detail on uh, social protection. So social protection roughly has these three objectives. So the first one is the protection part, so protecting households against hunger. Then the second one is preventing household depletion, so in the face of shocks usually. And the third one is actually to promote livelihoods. So how can households actually go um, uh, graduate in a sense from having to need uh, social protection? So, and I think um, our next presenter is gonna talk about this a little bit more, so I'm not gonna really dwell on this for too long. Um, but the idea on the promoting livelihoods uh, notion of, of social <coughs> protection is that when households are actually operating in this environment where markets are missing, um, which is the case in, in, in rural areas of, of, of African countries uh, in general, uh, social protection can actually affect agriculture production and productivity. And the idea is that this can happen uh, through roughly four channels. There were actually three, but I made them into four. Uh, and this is also something that's dis discussed in the, in the ATOR itself. 
so you see that um, it can actually reduce these liquidity constraints and so encourage spending on agricultural inputs. Uh, it can actually facilitate small savings, uh, small scale savings or investment, for example, by acting as a collateral and enabling households to access uh, credit. It can actually affect uh, risk attitudes by altering household wealth. Eh? So you might may be more likely to actually take a risk because you feel that if all else fails, someone will be there to kind of, you know, catch you. Um, and then affect uh, food and nutrition security, uh, which may in turn enhance uh, labor productivity. So that's this kind of study that we've been doing for a while where you actually say, so if you're, uh, for example, uh, healthier, you're actually more productive also uh, on, the, on the land, if you will. Okay, and so um, just to say something about uh, these, these cash plus uh, programs. So um, usually when we think about uh, social protection, we still think mainly about cash transfers. Eh? So this, this case of, 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 of transferring some cash that can then be spent kind of at will. Well, unless they're of course conditional and then there's a particular direction uh, in which you wanna kind of um, have the spending go. Uh, and so, but when you talk about cash plus programs, there are actually these interventions that provide those transfers but also have some additional components or interventions that actually are designed to augment these income effects. So it's not only a cash transfer, but there's something on top that helps you actually um, improve your livelihood like itself. That's kind of the promotion uh, notion still. And so there's these livelihood programs, um, which is like a wide range of interventions that help the poor acquire productive assets, build skills, or create new market opportunities. And then there's these graduation programs that usually focus on the extreme poor and actually try to uh, reduce their poverty by tackling the interrelated challenges that they are facing. Okay, and so the reason why I'm kind of building up to that is that there's a chapter in the book uh, by Munshi Suleiman which actually talks about the impact evidence. And so he actually looked at these 48 programs that were implemented, I think, across the globe between 2014 and 2016. And uh, he drew some conclusions on the, on, on the basis of this. I don't think we should take them too. Um, I mean, there are some limitations to the way he was actually able to kind of compute the costs and the benefits. But nevertheless, so, so what he kind of found out was that there was not a clear relationship between per beneficiary cost and impact. So it was not so clear that when you're spending more, you're actually uh, impacting um, welfare of the poor by, by more. And then, um, what he also found out was that while annual household consumption gain as a pr proportion of total program cost was the highest for cash transfers, they actually had the least amount of evidence of a long-term impact. <coughs> and then, uh, he, he, so he compared uh, uh, cash transfers, livelihood programs, and graduation programs. And so for the livelihood programs, he found actually um, this limited sustainability of impact. So he actually looked at did the program still have an impact after a year after it was completed, and he found very limited evidence of that. And then actually when he compared the three, he found out that graduation programs are actually the most consistent in having a significant uh, positive impact across sites. And so I have these two little figures um, to illustrate this a little bit. So what you can see, um, so this is for all programs, uh, and so what you can see is that the, the cash transfers kind of hover around uh, the median um, and so you can also see that there's not such a clear uh, direction between the, the amount of uh, spending and the impacts, right? So that's what I just 
mentioned. And then uh, a, a second graph he prepared was to look at the impacts after one year. And I mean, it's uh, it, so what you what you can see from here is that when you actually look at the sustain sustainability of the impact, uh, these uh, graduation programs have this kind of relatively consistent score in the high cost, high impact uh, quadrant of the graph. So that's just kind of to illustrate. I mean, there's a lot of noise in this, in this regression. So you have to understand that there are very different studies. Uh, he had to uh, make some assumptions to actually be able to compare costs and benefits. But this is just to give you an idea. So, um, and this is something that was already uh, mentioned by Usman. So there's actually two trends that will uh, determine the future demand for social protection in African countries. So what we've, what we've seen is that even though uh, uh, there's been a recent economic recovery in Africa, uh, high uh, poverty rates have remained uh, relatively high because the, the period of decline and stagnation was actually pretty long. And so not everybody's been able to bounce back from that. And then it's in, the, in the second trend is actually that we have this transition um, towards more, more democratic systems, a larger urban population, which is also more often more vocal, and um, which actually may demand that the government do more to actually protect uh, the poor. So there's this uh, twofold challenge essentially uh, being uh, faced by governments of, of African countries. So on the one hand, there is still this need to find sufficient resources to invest in accelerating growth. And on the other hand, they also have to meet the costs of providing social service services to large numbers of poor and vulnerable people. So you can see that in terms of a budget constraints, that may be a little bit uh, difficult. And of course, then you also have the fact that most of these countries are already operating on the tight budget constraints and have this limited experience with social protection programs. So you see that this is still a huge uh, challenge. So what, uh, what also emerges a little bit from uh, the research that was done for the book is that um, some countries are actually moving towards a systems approach. And so I think the future is really uh, looking to, uh, countries are looking to actually come up with these nationally owned social protection systems, like we, we known them, we've known them in, in Europe, in the States, I guess. Um, and so that would mean that you actually have this comprehensive social protection response. You have these, um, you can offer a broad range of coordinated multi-sector interventions uh, to, to your beneficiaries, and you actually add this extra dimension of, the, of, of these um, systems being transformative, so really being able to, um, to change the status of the household. Um, and so one, one uh, chapter uh, that really looked at what are some of the design features uh, that should be considered to make these systems uh, a success was this chapter by uh, Rachel Sabatas Wheeler. And then there was also this chapter by um, uh, Gashao and Kala for, for Ethiopia that actually looked at some of the design features with reference to the, to the PNS, PNSP, the Ethiopian uh, program. And so I, I think these letters may be a little bit small, so maybe we, sh we shouldn't have to I'll just try to. <laughs> so the first one is this idea that, uh, that, that came out is that uh, in some cases, universal targeting may actually be preferable. And that really comes out from this discussion of we are all poor here. So you're making this extreme effort to target the poorest of the poor. And, and in, that, in, in that effort, which is very costly, you have to get a lot of information, you have to conduct a survey, and you're still really comparing like households that are all kind of, you know, balancing around the poverty line. So 
should you really make that effort? Is it really uh, uh, worth to, to try to make that distinction? Or should you say in some cases where the situation is, is one of uh, a flat income or asset distribution, should you say, okay, we're just going to have a blanket um, targeting uh, policy? So that's one. And then second, um, there's this, uh, this, this idea that uh, no one size fits all. So while the, the targeting can be kind of, you know, uh, universal, the type of program may have to differ between the type of household. So not all households are in the same situation and have the same needs. So it is important to actually recognize this heterogeneity because that's actually going to help you uh, help your program to be more uh, effective. And then finally, and I think that um, we'll talk about this a little bit later, is that this idea that you know you need to promote graduation. So you know the social protection, putting in place the social protection scheme is not the end in itself. The end should really be to put it in place and then to try to see how households can actually then graduate from it. Uh, so I'm really talking about rural households, not about pension schemes, because that's going to be more difficult. But, um, but you know, to really see what do households need to actually be able to get off the, the cash transfer program. And then finally, and this, this emerged mainly from, I think, the study of um, Gashau and, uh, and, and Kalle, is that uh, we really need to have this local buy-in. So even though, of course, uh, donors have been very, uh, very active in trying to kind of, you know, pioneer, test uh, these these schemes. What eventually you're trying to look for is actually something that's country-owned and led, um, because that also means that actually um, it responds to these uh, local conceptualizations, and it's actually governments are actually accountable to what's going on, and they can actually, uh, you know, defend themselves against their. Uh, constituents to say this is what we are actually doing. So that's also kind of an important uh, point to make. And also I think that maybe I, I didn't emphasize this enough, there's also a need for really for government ministries to collaborate on this, right? Because we're not only talking about um, cash transfers, we're talking about really programs that have to be coordinated with the Ministry of Agriculture. Uh, for example, I think maybe Natalia is going to say a little bit more about that, about that too. So then finally, um, so two key lessons that, that I kind of drew uh, from, uh, from the report, that there is this need to make uh, substantial progress in developing these functional social protection systems in the coming decade. And it's extremely important, especially uh, for, for, the st for the stability of, of the country, yeah? because you've got this, 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 you know, this, this demand and this, this idea that, you know, the notion that you actually are entitled to somehow receive some protection from, from your government, and also because it's actually uh, something that can contribute to growth. So that's also very important to, to bear in mind. And then um, if we have these systems that are well designed and well implemented, they can actually really uh, do a lot more than just you know, sustaining uh, poor households. They can actually enhance human capital and agricultural productivity, reduce inequalities, build resilience, and end these intergenerational cycles of poverty. So thank you very much.